welcome to Farmerama. This episode is slightly different to usual. We're recording at Silo in Brighton with today's co-host, eco-chef Doug McMaster. He's going to be talking to us about his zero-waste philosophy and how this transforms what it means to serve food. Doug and his suppliers Emil and Miriam will be with us as we also hear from Joel Salatin as he tells us his tips for respecting the pigness of the pig. And Abby goes on a walk to learn about the craft of managing ancient woodland sustainably and profitably now and for many generations to come. You know Abby and I and Nigel, I'm here. And uh, I'm Doug. Uh, I uh, am the chef and owner of Silo. And I'm Emil and I, uh, I keep large black pigs for small hauling in Sussex. And my name is Miriam and I'm Emil's partner and we're, I'm co-managing the pigs. Silo began as a zero-waste restaurant. Actually, it began as a zero-waste cafe in Melbourne in 2012. Um, we successfully didn't have a bin uh, for a year before I needed to come home. I came home to the UK and um, set up Silo in Brighton. Everything that comes into Silo doesn't have any packaging. If it is packaged, then it's uh, natural packaging, so you know, biodegradable materials, etc. And then everything that isn't eaten by, by us... Uh, by our customers um, is then eaten by the compost machine. You know, 100% or 99.9% of every material that comes in only leaves as compost. But to achieve that system, we had to um, start milling flour and churning butter and making our own yogurt and fermenting food and butchering whole animals rather than processed animals. Um, so we kind of created uh, what we lovingly describe as caveman cooking, um, doing everything from scratch, and then realised that our end product was a very unique end product. It looked different, and it certainly tasted different. And you know, we don't have any sort of data, but we're sure that our food is incredibly healthy because of the way in which you know we're sort of producing the food. You know, wheat or any grain as soon as it's um, uh, broken, uh, cracked open, um, it starts to die. You know, 72 hours, as they say, loses 80% of its natural quality. You know, we're principally milling flour uh, for that reason now. It began with zero waste, but now it's, you know, to, you know, because this is the way flour or wheat should be digested into our bodies, and the same for all different grains we use. In lots of when you, when you describe what it is you do, you use the word respect quite a lot. It's like your respect in the in the food chain almost. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you and how that relates to how you deal with uh, your suppliers? I think you know, in terms of how I respect uh, the source of food, is you know the simple uh, knowing that the most sustainable, you know, nutrient dense food from the best, uh, you know. Uh, environments is the most delicious food so if the most sustainable food is the most delicious food there's this beautiful synergy so Emil um, approached uh, me and Silo about five months ago and for the last two or three months we've been using his large black pork yeah for me the first time that I ate this this pork it changed everything um, it changed my perspective on on you know what how good 
um, this, this sort of protein, this pig, this, this meat could be. And it changed the way I want to serve that meat. Uh, I'm very, very specific about the meat we use at Silo. It's certainly a very small percentage of the product we serve. And, and then when we do serve it, it has to be it's almost uh, religious how, how important the preparation um, and how important uh, that produce has been and has been reared and handled from, from birth even. Uh, it's sort of the, the expression, you are what you eat, eats. I believe in that for everything. You know, if uh, if I don't know, a gem lettuce is grown hydroponically, it's never going to taste as good as it is if it's grown in you know amazing nutrient soil. You know, it's, it's it's sort of appreciation of of source. Well, I'm very excited that my meat got to this restaurant straight away because I've only started keeping these large black um, one year ago almost now. So I did my research a little bit and I found out that large black. Um, was supposed to have very good meat. So for me it was just, okay, I'm going to try this out and uh, see if it's true. Well, a bit like Doug, Doug said, it was, it was amazing. It was such a wonderful flavor, especially the fats. They were mm. so concentrated, the sweetness, it's just amazing. And I started thinking, why is that? But the thing is, I also work in an organic orchard, so I'm getting a lot of waste fruit, apples and plums and pears and all, all sorts of things. And I'm also working at Plohash Farm, which is a biodynamic dairy farm, also in Sussex. And sometimes I take some waste milk from there, and I feed all that to my pigs. And they've got a lot of space. So they've been grazing and rooting on quite a large field. Um, and I feed them organic pellets myself. So their diet is very varied. So the sort of zero waste philosophy is of course right. the restaurant is also employing that in your... That's what I actually want to do. So anything that I can reuse from other farms, that, that's basically how pigs used to be reared as well. They were a byproduct of, for example, um, the beer industry. Um, they would eat the, the, the barley that you know, was used for making beer, or um, they were reared on whey, which is a byproduct of uh, cheese making. Um, so it just makes complete sense to do that. But at the moment, it's quite difficult now in the UK to feed... Um, kitchen waste to pigs, I think it's not even allowed, but I can definitely feed them a bit of apple and a, a bit of leftover milk. So you're, mm. um, say, supplying a couple of large black pigs mm. a month to Sido, and you're supplying the whole, so you bring the whole carcass, you take it yes. to the abattoir, get it slaughtered, That's right. and then drop it here, and Douglas take care, takes care of it, essentially. Yeah. And obviously, Doug, I guess you're fairly happy to pay a premium, you, you're not paying the global supply and demand price for pork, right? I mean, this is, this is a premium product. Absolutely. Yeah, me and, uh, me and Emil uh, talked this through, as you do, and um, didn't take a lot of negotiation to find a price that, you know, made, hit, made his end of the, you know, uh, bargain streamlined, i.e. not having to prep anything. Um, and for us, you know, we knew what we were getting, this quality, this sort of superior flavour, and knowing, obviously, that it's from a, you know, great source. You know, we have uh, lots of interesting ways, ways to manage um, whole preparation. Mm. So there's a reason why restaurants don't uh, prep their own food anymore. You know, there's part of this industrial model where everything's pre-produced, and then it's just sort of served in restaurants these days. Even Michelin star restaurants, they just buy in done items and finish them. Put them on a plate and win a Michelin star. Now we're totally the other end of the spectrum where we do everything from scratch. And it's taken two years and we're still learning, but like we found 
ways to make whole animal butchery and milling flour feasible for a restaurant. You know, we've simplified the end product, um, which is also beneficial gastronomically. When you eat something so good, it's almost better to serve less because you focus, your palate can focus on these superior items. So it's a sort of um, win-win because, you know, we're doing less prep, which means we can do more prep, i.e. milling flour, churning butter, rolling oats, fermenting food, buttering whole animals, um, and the end product's better for it. Well, because I get a, a very fair price for my product, it actually gives me a lot of freedom. Um, that means that I can start growing my business because I'm very small at the moment. Uh, that actually has benefits as well because now I can cater to what you guys need. So zero waste, that's why I got these industrial large crates um, that I bring the, the pigs in and then I take them home, wash them and I can reuse them again. So there is indeed no waste, which is completely in line with what I believe in anyway. So um, this cooperation for me is fantastic because this is what I want as well. ago, Abby and Nigel met Joel Salatin at a Sustainable Food Trust event, discussing the future of livestock. Joel is a world-renowned alternative-thinking mixed livestock farmer from Virginia. Over the next few episodes, we're going to hear a few stories from him. Pigs don't like electric fences, and so Joel cleverly encloses temporary paddocks with electric fences and temporary wooden gates, so the pigs are happy to move on and do their rooty work in the next field. The pigs are real smart. Pigs are, I think, the smartest animal, really. They don't uh, trust you with that electric fence gate like a cow, like cows do, as easily. They, they will eventually, but they're pretty difficult uh, uh, starting off. The cows, when you open an electric fence gate and call the, cur- the, the group routinely, they just run through the electric fence gate, you close it, it's done. Pigs aren't like that. They say, hmm. Uh, no, there's electric fence there. I can't see it, but I know it's been there, and I'm not going to cross it. So we make sure that all the pig paddocks have a wooden gate, a space where you can put a wooden gate in. doesn't have to be, you know, um, two meters is, is plenty. But just a wooden gate, the pigs are used to rubbing up on it. They can see it. There is part. Suddenly you remove it to move them in. Well, they, they then run right into the next paddock. Uh, where you wouldn't be able to get them in for a day, you know, with electric fence gate. And then you just take that gate and, and beat the pigs to the end of the paddock and set it up at the, at the far end. And then once the pigs move in, you take the old back gate, you move it in as the back gate, and so you're just moving these uh, gates a paddock forward. So you can have ten paddocks with two gates simply rotating the gates through just with the pigs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes me laugh a bit, yeah, because of course I keep pigs as well. And it's, it's true about the electric fence. They know very well where the electric fence line is. There are several solutions to this. First of all, I, I try moving them when uh, at feeding time. So I got my bucket of food, removed the fence, and then I found that half of them followed the food. The other half thought, no, no, there's an electric fence there. I'm not going, I'm not going across that line. And of course, the first ones are already tentative, but the moment they cross the line, then they're like, okay, hey, we're out, it's fine, there's no electric fence, off we go. You have to find a solution, because I didn't want to leave them in an empty field. So what I came up with in the end was actually get my trailer there, and then um, open uh, the, the lid uh, over the electric fence line, 
and then have food in the trailer. So they walked on the trailer because they didn't mind crossing the line while walking on wood for some reason, which is an interesting big psychology thing. So they went on the trailer eventually, it took a while. Just, and that's the thing with, with livestock handling, especially with pigs. Patience is key. You cannot rush them. Pigs are definitely curious, so um, you can kind of handle them by um, um, kindling that curiosity. Uh, but you can also create a really an individual relationship with them, which I don't know exactly, but with pigs or, or sorry, with their sheep, that's I think slightly sheep, different. You can get the odd character and stuff like that, but yeah, I think perhaps pigs probably are like you know more intelligent as Joel suggested. Yeah. They're very individual characters. Yeah. Like yeah. the two sows that I've got, they're very different. And it, it's... Yeah, that's actually, the, for me, also a pleasure of working with, with pigs, um, is that, that curiosity that Mary was talking about. Teddy Bruin owns and cares for a few thousand acres of ancient woodland in Norfolk, which is in the UK. Abby visited recently and was overwhelmed by what looked like a wild wonderland to the naked eye. But this long-standing, self-sustaining business is far from wild. Here's Teddy and his son Freddie to talk us through their careful, single-selection woodland management techniques, which underpin this carefully crafted landscape. These beets all planted at the same time. You can see how differently they've grown. Yeah, wow, and, one's and, double uh, the size. Yeah, exactly. Because they haven't had the same opportunity as this, this tree has. Mm-hmm. These beets are doing these trees a lot of good in that they're keeping their trunks in darkness so they're not producing shoots. Mm-hmm. So you don't want lots of uh, little branches growing out of they're called epicormic shoots. So that, that's really all those, those beech trees are doing. They're not being grown for any particular value, and they're never going to make valuable trees, ever. If you were going to do a thinning now in this woodland where these trees are 80 years old... Ready? They're not 80 years old. Well, they're 70 years old. No, they're 60 years old, yeah. Uh, six, I thought they were planted in 1954. No, 51. 51, so they're 70s. What would you market them? How, how, how would you sell them? You'd cut them down? Well, if if you were cutting a tree like this down... Mm-hmm. To make um, light for a better one? Or uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be cutting that one down. But if you were cutting it down, then up to that first branch, um, I think one would... Because of the quality of it, you'd probably get a, get them at ride side so and get somebody to come and bid for them. We would probably I'd process sell it, it to a firewood merchant. Sell it to a firewood merchant, or sell it as in as in cut, or, or cut it, it up into sizable lengths and sell it to a firewood merchant, or chip it, depending on what the price and demand of firewood is. Like anything, if you if you're going to buy a product, you know, you can really see and understand its quality, and that I think is a. Where a lot of people go wrong, you know, they'll leave a huge heap of just sticks for a firewood merchant. But if you lay those sticks out in, in a nice pile, so he can see, he can measure the volume of it easily. He can give you a, he can pay you 
because firewood merchants don't pay you for each individual log in a heap. You might keep, you might sell a firewood merchant logs at two meters long. So in, in here, you can see these these larch are, 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 are nice trees. They're nice and straight, and they're growing tall. 1988. This this small area here blew down in a big hurricane in 1987. Heard about that hurricane yeah, yeah. across the whole UK, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Some parts very badly. Tree, you know, we got off pretty lightly in a certain space. Just after so, I was born. Uh, and uh, the, this the, that dates you. Oh, uh, anyway, um, so here I, I like this situation here. Okay, that that'll never make a tree, but there's there's quite a lot of regeneration going on here. So that when you remove the overstory, they can carry on growing. You follow me? You didn't plant those as such. You just—they've just developed. Is that right? The understory. The, the, the understory has developed on its own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all the trees in the wood. There's there's hundreds of seed-bearing trees in okay. the wood. And um, <clears throat> so, those trees, that understory, are, um, are are basically enabling you to continue drawing a profitable income as as you fell the larger trees you have a you have a tree ready to replace it which is a, a system that seems to have a more sustainable income than if you were clear felling and restocking because then you've got to wait for a, a longer period of time before you can draw money from the next crop is that fair to say yes that is correct so that is in essence the the model. The model of single selection. Mm-hmm. That you, you can take out an income much more regularly. Yeah. You, you get a, a regular income, whereas with clear cutting, you, you, you get a, a build, huge build-up in capital value on the site, and then you cut it down and then you start at naught again. Yeah. If you make major interventions in, in, a, in a wood by clear cutting uh, then you let the wind in and uh, you, you can have uh, associated problems with that mm-hmm. in terms of uh, catastrophic storm damage and so on you, you may have to protect them against rabbits and deer and that sort of thing you can uh, see the deer damage you can see where the deer have stripped away oh, yeah. the tree yeah. Yeah. and that has a major impact on the growth of the tree yeah. so how do you prevent that? But bang bang! It's a it's a really underdone thing in, in the there's no natural predators and it takes a real commitment and the forestry commission are very proactive. Well, they they encourage people to be very proactive so you can receive grants for controlling deer. Um, it's something that we probably don't do quite enough of at the moment, but you know that people will pay money to do. And obviously, venison has a value, although it's undervalued by the UK. Sure. Because people don't like to eat it strangely they're so healthy and delicious though yeah, and delicious it's very important that certain species that you get good provenance that means they come from good parents mm-hmm. uh, because on on average they will th- throw better offspring than uh, parents that are, that are no good but sometimes even if you've got good parents uh, they will still throw bad offspring 
but generally speaking, with oak, it's it, it's it's um, it, it, it's uh, you know the less oak you grow on an area, uh, the less density, the less chance you have of establishing a really good stand of trees of good quality. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you can get uh, trees of the best provenance you can find, then you stand a better chance and you can plant a, f- a few less. Right. You follow me? Um, <clears throat> you, you really had to spend money in order to make to see your money come back because people, the idea of planting 5,000 trees in a hectare to many people would seem like such a huge sum of money they would never imagine that that would be worth their while. But of course... By doing that, you enable yourself in the end to to, to reach how many trees per hectare the final crop. Um, Eighty-five, and and that means that by the time that the final stand is ready to be cut down, over the course of the 120 years, you've taken out everything but the 85 of the oak that are standing, give or take. And and does the oak that you take out in the medium term have any value? Yes. Yep. Obviously, as they get bigger, the more valuable they become, but the less frequent you you can do it. Mm-hmm. So, as soon as you start thinning, you're you're, you're producing something uh, in terms of low-grade uh, wood for firewood, for example. Right. Uh, but as 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 the trees get bigger, then uh, the, the, the 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 value of what you cut out cut out of them out of them increases. Right, we'll move on now. Uh, we make some money out of our woods. Um, and it's by working them and, you know, doing... I mean, you're not going to make any, any money out of wood unless you sell something from it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing all the time. You see, there, 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 there's some oak there, you see. Mm-hmm. There, there, they're, they're planted in, in a pure situation there, mm-hmm. and uh, um, they're, they're competing with each other quite vigorously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can tell you that that's going to be a very fine stand of oak. We had a group of oak here. You see, there's, there's one left there, and, and uh, groups of oak. Unfortunately, the, 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 there was only six oak or eight oak in each group, and that was not enough to produce a decent quality tree. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, and they were planted with a, with a, with a conifer crop that was growing far too fast for them. Mm-hmm. So most of them didn't make it. So instead of turning out to be a final cr- crop of, of oak in here, we, we ended up with a mixture of, of, of conifers. My father at the time, silly old bugger that he wasn't, um, said uh, you must plant Christmas trees in between the Corsican pine because uh, then you can harvest the Christmas trees uh, you know, and sell them at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. So we did that and we sold thousands of Christmas trees out of here. Uh, the, the Christmas tree is always Bruce. Mm-hmm. Well, it was in those days. Now it's, they have more exotic species. When do you think, if you were to set up, start a forest now, when do you think you would first start seeing any income from it? You mean if you bought the wood and or if you planted one from scratch? If you planted scratch. one from scratch. Not, not until it was 20 years old. 20 years old. Mm. Yeah. Okay. 
Nothing but it. Have you ever had to fell a tree that you really didn't want to fell? Uh, yes. I've had trees felled that I didn't want felled. <laughs> but you don't become attached to a tree then? Do I do I hug trees? No, I said you become attached to them. Oh, I thought you said did I do and chat to them? <laughs> do you? <laughs> not really. No. I'm not a tree hugger as such. I love them instead. Oh good. <laughs> You're a tree lover. <laughs> <laughs> so you never have had the situation where you like because someone really wants that tree, I'm going to fell it, but I don't want If it. somebody would pay me £20,000 to cut that tree down, I'd cut it down tomorrow. OK, great. No one would pay me that. <laughs> no one would pay me anything for that. <laughs> oh, getting back in the car. wonderfully managed. Tree by tree, he goes around, he carefully looks and says, okay, that oak is 140 years old, it's now ready to be sold, and they'll cut it down. But then in another area, he's planting oaks, and he sees that very much as like in 120 years' time, someone will be harvesting those. Such long-term thinking, it totally blew my mind, and that he, you know, it just was part of the business. Um, and that he did care for the trees, and he did see each tree almost individually. Yeah. And for me, what's inspiring is that for a lot of people out there who, you know, maybe are more conventional thinking, or, you know, like, well, what's the bottom line on this? This is a model of something that actually does have a sustainable bottom line, and is helpful in so many ways to the environment. He has so much knowledge stored up in his head, and it was amazing to walk around the forest with him, and have him see everything, at every layer that was going on, and oh, well, that in 10 years will be gone, and that in 100 years will be gone. It was like, wow, years and layers, and it was insane. I think this is kind of good for everybody. It's good for the world, and I think it's going to be, there's going to be more opportunities for mm-hmm. uh, grants and funding and subsidies for people doing this sort of... Yeah, I was at a, a forestry event um, in Suffolk not too long ago, and they were saying how uh, part of the... COP20 agreement in Paris, is that right, COP20? Part of that agreement was that forestry or planting woodland became an official way of sequestering carbon. People were thinking that there would be new grants and schemes from the government coming in very shortly that would encourage people to plant more woodland because in 20 years' time that woodland will be taking in quite a bit of carbon and that's when the goals need to be met. So that's an interesting perspective for farmers who... For you know, may have a bit of land where they could plant some trees. It may there may be help from the government to kind of, you know, see out that twenty years when you're not necessarily getting any income as such. And the other exciting thing about it is going back to Joel Salatin. He keeps all of his pigs on the forest floor um, around him, sometimes on paddock and sometimes in forests. And so there's a huge potential for farmers in the UK to have that be kind of another mixed farming setup. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen it in a couple of places where the first few months after you've had pigs in a forest floor, it looks quite damaged. But actually what it does, it rejuvenates. So maybe the year after that, you've got all sorts of plants that the seeds were hidden in the soil that couldn't push through the brambles and all the other stuff that was there. And suddenly you have, you have hyacinths coming up or whatever, very interesting plants. Uh, so it actually really rejuvenates.
well, on the 40 acres that I'm farming on, half of it is sort of woodlands. And interestingly enough, I had a walk around and planning out uh, what we're going to do with our fields yesterday. And we were talking about, okay, this bit, we're going to leave that to nature. And we're going to plant a few trees there, and that's just it. We're not even going to top it or maybe have a sheep in there now and then, but that's it. We're just going to leave that. And this bit, okay, you know what? Those, those tree lines coming into the fields, those few young trees we're going to leave. So there's, there's a lot of space for nature. And mm. the funny thing is, um, I think the most important thing you can do to simplify it is actually to give room to diversity and complexity. That's it. If you do that, hopefully nature balances itself out a little bit. Um, because nutrients will be available, certain insects will be attracted to certain things that you never thought was going to grow in the woods, and they bring a certain thing to your land. It's too, it's too much to actually really comprehend unless you make a real study of it per plot of land. It's a very natural but also very managed process, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's very zero waste. But at one point he was talking about the, the aim being enormous oak trees. There's all these different levels where you're taking things out and you're, you're, you're turning that essentially waste product into another kind of product. So mm. there would be firewood or mm. it would be chipped or it would be turned into a Christmas mulch tree. or a Christmas tree or exactly. I didn't actually uh, say earlier, but my inspiration behind uh, Zero Waste and having a Zero Waste restaurant was the book One Straw Revolution. Mm. I think I've told you before this, yep, Nigel, yep. that you know, reading this book... He describes nature. I think you've got the same sort of lingo as um, Masanobu Fukuoka. He's a (laughs) Japanese farmer philosopher. He's properly deep and hardcore philosophy that he's kind of created on his own and kind of uses nature as an example for his thoughts. And, um, you know, he describes nature as this amazing, you know, sort of symphony. Um, And then in it, he describes, you know, in nature, there is no waste. And I always remember that sticking out and thinking, you know, this idea of zero waste is far more than this literal practice of not having a bin. You're almost respecting nature in being zero waste because nature is zero waste. Um, So that, you know, it has always been in my mind as just this beautiful, simple idea that waste is like where we've kind of gone wrong a bit. You know, we've sort of evolved and uh, turned our backs on nature. And then waste has occurred. I like the analogy with the symphony. I used to be a classical musician. Oh, really? And um, <laughs> interestingly enough, I think if you have if you have to manage a piece of land, you're sort of a conductor mm. because you have all these instruments at your disposal, and you're trying to create something very beautiful. Mm. I think if you're aiming for something beautiful, which sounds a bit you know wishy washy, but <laughs> I think if you try that with all these different instruments, as it were, yeah. or aspects, whether it be trees or mycorrhizal activity in the soil or life so that you're keeping or you know all these things balancing out together creating something very nice beautiful craft i think the more we can see farming as a craft the more respect people will have for it and the more understanding and i that was one thing that came up at the livestock event was yeah. joel said like it's farmers as, as craftsmen as opposed to uh farmers as commodity yeah crafty versus commodity sort of factory farming versus like artisan farming one of the problems for me with artisan is that that's so uh, associated with like an elite uh, specialised market nowadays that word artisan Um, and I think really the reason I like crafty or craft is because that's not got such associations it's just much more like acknowledging that a lot goes into it and that doesn't necessarily mean that what comes out is 
not available to everyone. Mm. I, I like that. Is that something that like Silo has almost like wrestled with slightly? Yeah. How, to, how to describe a mm. is it post-industrial restaurant? Um, Pre-post. Pre. Um, <laughs> change my mind, everyone. Um, no, absolutely. So my business plan um, has always been to. Um, kind of uh, shift the focus on a subject which hasn't been until now a very enticing, uh, attractive um, and certainly delicious subject you know, is sustainability you put the word sustainability into a sentence with food, you're not hungry or you don't want to, you know, if I say this restaurant down the road is sustainable this sustainable, that sustainable, the other and then describe another restaurant with this beautifully caramelised, da, 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 you want to go to this one, so I've always been very conscious of making uh, what this model is attractive, you know, and if you're really interested, go on our social media or go on our website, but you don't come in and get, you know touted with all this sort of how to how to change the world um, in scripture um, you just have a nice time hopefully like I have my it's a bit of a joke but like the dirty words of silo like don't say vegan don't say sustainable I don't actually say that to my staff but it's we can we kind of all get it mm-hmm. you know we all get that you know like I'll always use the word plant food not vegan food on our social media for instance or our plant menu even yeah we're very conscious you know of, of how and which the the sort of you know, the message comes across. From a chef's perspective, what do you see as the future of farming? I just want to see, like, I want to connect. Like, I think that, you know, I mean, we all know that there's this uh, disconnect um, but knowing what's going on on the farm, you know, there's beautiful ideas with technology. You know, I have um, an amazing organic vegetable farmer called Toos, and um, every time I go to the, to her farm, Lane's Organics, um, I see 20 things that aren't on her list, and I'm like, Toos, I will buy this from you. I will use this, and you know, essentially, this is extra profit for you. Like, just tell me it's here, and she just. She, she writes me this list, like, on a pen, pen and paper on the back of a scrap piece of paper. But, like, if we knew what was going on on that farm, you know, so much would be different. So it's kind of like knowing, it's like connecting to the farm. I'm not necess- necessarily saying we do it through technology, but that is quite a nice... Uh, illuminating idea that we can see what's going on on the farm and just having a connection to it. And now once more to Joel Salatin with another idea which sees the future of farming tied to a deeper understanding of what's happening on the land, almost live. This was in response to Nigel speculatively asking him about technology he was looking forward to seeing being introduced into farming in the years and decades to come. I think there are some really cool pieces of infrastructure that would be neat, and one would be some sort of uh, video surveillance of especially water tanks, yeah. water troughs for the herds of cows on rental land, on our land. Some of them are, you know, uh, 10, 12 miles away. You've yeah. got a herd of 400 cows 12 miles away. Boy, it'd really be great 
to, to see real-time video coverage of the water, the water trough especially, yeah, yeah. that it's up, the water's full, you know, it's all, they haven't dumped it over, the pump didn't stop, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so I, I think that, that, video, that cheap, accessible video surveillance, we've actually, you know, played around with it a lot, yeah. but right now we still don't have enough uh, completely ubiquitous uh, phone, uh, cell phone service yeah, yeah, yeah. to be able Free to, and they all work on cell phone towers. Yeah. So uh, that's one that I'm looking forward to. And I think that will come to where we can go down in the morning, um, and part of chores is I go down in the morning and I punch, uh, punch the computer monitors, and I can bring up every uh, water trough involved with the system. And, uh, and yep, that one's working. That one's working. That one's working. Yeah. That would that would really help my day be uh, stress free. It's Christmas Day for those of you listening. Right now. <laughs> 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 I hope you got some nice presents. <laughs> That's all from Farmerama for this month and this year, um, and we look forward to continuing the journey with all of you in the new year so thanks so much from all of us thanks from all of us and we'll we'll just say goodbye Uh, I'll see you at Silo and uh, goodbye from Doug (laughs) bye from Abby goodbye from Nigel goodbye from Emil and Miriam as well